Well, let's turn, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And while you're turning there, I want to, again, thank you all. I thanked you all on Sunday and Saturday, but I thanked you all very much for your prayers last week. It uh, was a very uh, tough time for me physically, and uh, and yet uh, I'm very thankful that God has brought me through that. And I uh, uh, don't know really to the extent of what, what happened but uh, or what caused the, the problems, but uh, we may have to dig a little deeper, but... We, we're thankful that, that God has given me uh, even the wherewithal to be here with you tonight. <laughs> and uh, this last weekend, too, was a blessing to be home. This is home for me. This is my home. And you're my family. And I don't like to be away from you guys. As long as I'm in town, I don't, I don't miss. You know, this, this is where I'm supposed to be. I don't go gallivanting on Wednesdays, anywhere else. This is, this is where I'm to be doing what God's called me to do, which is to teach you God's Word. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, it's really rare when <laughs> I, just could, I wasn't even able to open my eyes to be able to see light because uh, you know, I had a migraine. To, for those of you who would understand what, what that, that is, it's a very painful thing. Uh, I used to have them years and years ago uh, from a neck injury that I had. And... Uh, for the longest time, you know, I hadn't, I, I didn't have one, you know, and I, I thank the Lord, and I still do. But when they come, for whatever reason, uh, you know, it's very painful. So I uh, sympathize with those of you who do struggle through that, but I'm going to pray for something, something that I just was so excited about hearing today. I haven't heard it for 38 years as a Christian, but, uh, or 30-some years as a Christian, but, but the fact of the matter is, migraines, uh are nothing in God's hands. You believe that? I believe that. Nothing in God's hands for Him to touch and to heal. So, I'm thankful for your prayers because I believe that was part of the healing process for me. So, praise the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's read uh, the first seven verses here and then let's uh, pray. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Father, this evening as we turn to your word, we pray for the anointing and blessing of your spirit. As always, Lord, because we know that without your guidance and direction, without 
the wisdom and understanding that come from your spirit, Lord, we would not fully understand the meaning of this passage and these passages tonight. And the more that we look to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we realize that the prophets have something to say not only to their time but to ours. So may we be attuned and acutely attuned to your word as it applies to us, to our time, to our generation, to our country, to our nation, to our society. Help us, O God, in bringing strength and revival back to this land. And even through this passage, may it awaken us to our need to trust in you fully and completely. And these things, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is believed that the prophecies Jeremiah delivered in chapters 2 through 6 were done so in the first five years of his ministry. It is quite possible that at that time, he was a young man in his early to mid-twenties. There are some who actually have him younger than this, possibly between the ages of 15 and 20. But nonetheless, he was a very young man with the task of delivering stern warnings, stern predictions, uttering condemnation to his very own people and pronouncing judgment upon them that's a tremendous task for somebody so young to say go out there don't fear anybody and tell them these things that I've got to say to your people we've already gone through the first six chapters but as the prophecies that we find now here in in chapter 7 through 10 were given after a few things had taken place historically And spiritually, these prophecies that we're beginning to see and look at tonight came a little bit afterwards. First of all, they were given after the law of the Lord had been discovered in the temple during the time of cleansing as ordered by a young king, Josiah. And if you remember when we began our study that uh, Josiah was, was king, there are some who believe that Josiah and Jeremiah were were good friends, close-knit brothers in, in God and in the Lord. But uh, this is being given now after the law, after the temple has been cleansed. And if you remember, Josiah was greatly concerned about the spiritual life of his people, which reveals the personal relationship that he had with God in those earlier days. Because Josiah was a very young king too when he came to power. The temple was, was cleansed, repaired, and, and back in use while the idols were removed from the land. You might ask, did that help? Well, let's find out. Because in the year 609 B.C., Josiah the king didn't take heed to God's warnings. And he rashly, foolishly, and even hastily interfered in a war involving Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. Josiah was wounded in this particular battle near Megiddo. 
taken to Jerusalem to recover. But it was in Jerusalem where he died. And we read in Second Chronicles chapter 35, verses 20 to 35, After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Karshemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Interesting statement from a pagan king. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died, and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Notice the difference, though. It says all of Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah, but Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah and their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the, lament, in the laments or the lamentations. Interesting, they mourn. Certainly they were mourning a good king. But uh, Jeremiah lamented a deeper, painful, more heavy-set mourning. And I mention this because while Jeremiah certainly lamented the loss of this this great king in that deeper sense, Josiah's death was not seen as a call of God to the nation by the people. It was not seen as this call of God for them to repent and to confess their sins before God. Because you see, even though Josiah had, had brought about all of these reforms to Israel, what could he not do? What could he not do with the people? The people went to temple. The people went to sacrifice. The people did everything that people do nowadays on Sundays. You know, they get up, they wash their face, and they go to church. They went through the motions, you see. But what could he not do in their hearts? You see, the observable downslide of the country began right here. Listen to what took place after the death of Josiah. Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, reigned for three months, but was overthrown by the king of Egypt and replaced by his brother Eliakim, whom the Egyptian king named Jehoiakim. Because of this particular defeat, Judah was now an Egyptian vassal state. And by this new king, the nation of Judah was led back into its old idolatrous ways. So so Josiah had taken the idols out of the land, but he couldn't remove idol worship from the hearts of the people. And that was the problem. That was the dilemma. 
And so with all of this in mind, we come to the, to the third prophetic message now of Jeremiah, known by many as Jeremiah's temple address. Notice in verses 1 and 2, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. There are some who believe that this sermon... And the one that is found in chapter 26 are not only similar, but one in the same. Now, there are a couple of differences, though. First of all, here in chapter 7, Jeremiah is commanded by the Lord to stand in the gate of the Lord's house. That's as people are beginning to enter into the house of the Lord or into the, into the temple gates and whatnot. But in chapter 26, listen to what it says in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house. This is a different position. This is a different place. He has been outside, standing at the gates, warning the people as they're going in, in chapter 26. And really it's not too far from their distance of time, as, as it were. But nonetheless, in chapter 26, the emphasis is on the people's reaction to the message. In chapter 7, it is the content of Jeremiah's message, you see. The emphasis in chapter 7 is the content. The emphasis in chapter 26 is the reaction of God's people. And so the content of the message in our current text focuses on God's punishment of the people because of their false religion. The people are called upon to listen, and since the Jewish men were required to go up to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the feasts, this may have been one of those occasions. And if this was the case, then the temple itself was probably very crowded, though there weren't many true worshipers there. See, we could crowd places with a lot of people, but how many are true worshipers of God? We can fill churches day in, day out, Sundays, whenever. But how many are true worshipers of God? Now see, this is a question we need to think about, we need to ponder in our hearts. Because are we just here, just to you know, pass the time, just to sit back and just act like if nothing's matter, you know, or nothing matters, or are we here because we need to hear from God? Are we here because God cares about us and we care about His Word to us? Well, there are four indictments that are given in this particular passage, in this chapter, but we're going to deal with two of them tonight. The first indictment given by Jeremiah that day was your worship does you no good that's the indictment he's giving them your worship does you no good listen to verse and this is verses 1 through 15 we're going to cover a lot of ground mostly in this particular passage but look at it let's let's go down to verses 3 through 7 and it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings. I want you to, you know, underline that in your Bible. Amend. What does it mean to amend? To change. Change your ways and your doings. Change how you're doing things. Change what you're doing. 
and I will cause you to dwell in this place. What is God implying here? He's implying that what they're doing is not what He's looking at as far as the, the thing that blesses Him. But Lord, we're coming to church. Lord, we're coming to temple. Lord, we're making the sacrifices. He says, change your ways. Is he talking about the outward or is he talking about the inward? So you consider that. Because he says, amend your ways and your doings and I will cause you to dwell in this place. In other words, I will not only cause you to dwell, but I'll protect you where I brought you because that's where I want you. But I'll cause you to dwell, which means you're dwelling alive in this place. Safe because of my care for you. But then he says in verse 4, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And he's talking about all of the lying words that kept telling the people, Listen, as long as you go to temple, God's going to be pleased with you. As long as you make all the sacrifices, God is going to be pleased. He's not going to get mad at you. And even if you go out after temple and do whatever you want on your, on your high places, in your places where you know nobody else really sees what you're doing, you know it's okay because as long as you come to temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, do you understand now? Lying words, he's saying. Verse 5, he says, for, you thoroughly, um, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings. So again, he, he, he emphasizes the need for change. The need to, to have the heart be different than what it was. Because he's not dealing with the outward. He's not dealing with the sacrifices. He's not dealing with even the attendance. He's talking about the heart. And he says, if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly, thoroughly... You know, have you ever thought about the word thorough? Uh, have you ever been asked at your job or even in school to do a work that is thorough, complete, from beginning to end? You check your... your, your you know, you, to make sure you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's as long as you didn't dot your T's and cross your I's. But you go through everything until you have every detail down the way it is supposed to be. Thorough. If you thoroughly change, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, in other words, do what the law says between a man and his neighbor in the right way, with a right heart, with a right attitude, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, what is he talking about? He's talking about the law. He's taking them back to the very simple and basic premises of the law. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. Or walk after other gods to your hurt. The commandments of God. Or walk after other gods to your hurt. No other gods before me. Then, I will cause you to dwell in this place. In the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. The word thoroughly here is very important because you see, when we consider the easy believism of today, if we consider the cheap grace of today, I understand that Sean blessed you all with a powerful message last week, very similar to this particular topic. But if we consider the easy, believing, easy believism and the, and the cheap grace of today, some people think that they've got it made for eternity because they said one prayer, and yet their lives don't show it. 
Their lives are far from God because of their actions, because of their words, because of their thoughts. Folks, that prayer is like saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. May I tell you that God never values buildings over obedience. His protection upon the people of Judah would remain upon them, would remain upon them if they would only change their ways. If they would only repent of their sins and confess their sins before God. You see, the principle in 1 John 1 9 is an eternal principle. It's not just a New Testament principle. If you confess your sins, He is able to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If we confess, if we repent of our sins. And there were certain things that the Lord wanted to change in their lives. Primarily, they they weren't to oppress the helpless in society. Then they, they weren't to shed innocent blood. But lastly, they were they weren't to follow other gods, pure and simple. They weren't to follow other gods. They weren't to have idols. They weren't to have all of these little shrines of worship hidden as it were as it were from others, but it, you know, you can't hide it from God. I mean, the lost is simple. Deuteronomy, <coughs> excuse me. Deuteronomy 14, verse 29. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within their gates, may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. That was something they knew because it was in the law. But they had abused that and, 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 and forsaken that. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you should not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. God says you bless others, God bless you. They had done that because it was the law, but they got to the point where they didn't do it anymore. Why? Because they were more important to themselves. God says, come back to what I tell you. Come back to what I have commanded you to do but what happened was that they put their faith in deceptive words they put their faith in deceptive words because they believed the lies of the false prophets the people thought that they could go on living in sin and still go to the temple and worship the holy God all because of the false prophets and there are false prophets on TV today only dealing with the fact that, you know, you just need to feel better about yourself. You need to feel just better, a little bit, a little bit better about yourself. Just build yourself up. Have a little better self-esteem because it's all about you, you see. And, and you know, you call upon God and, and, and God wants to bless. God just wants to bless you. And you never hear about sin and you never hear about repentance. And you never hear about the sorrow that comes when we realize that we have sinned against the Holy God. In effect, they had been convinced that the temple 
had become their talisman. You know what a talisman is? Their good luck charm. Just go to the temple, you'll be all right. We know that this wasn't faith. All this was, was blind superstition. Blind superstition. And notice in verse 8 of our text now, in Jeremiah 7, verse 8. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Time out. <clears throat> Gee, I hope that was mine, my water. Jeremiah 7 verse 8 says, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Notice that. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. That is a tremendously powerful statement. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Where have you heard that before? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I said my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And, and now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord. And I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim, reflecting the northern kingdom of Israel. Here was a people living an immorally wicked lifestyle, but they did go to temple which in their minds negated all the evil they did. There's only one word for this. Foolish. It's the only word. What, what, what do we know from the scriptures? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In his heart. You can go to temple every week. You can go to church every week. It's in the heart where you either say he is Lord or you act as if he's not God at all. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The more we act on our terms and do what we want to do, however we want to do it, breaking every, every law of God, we are saying in effect, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They had deceived themselves as well. They weren't just deceived, but they deceived themselves as well and were heading down a path of death and destruction. That's why Jeremiah is calling out to them. 
years before that wind of judgment through the Babylonians will come. 609 B.C., if that's where we are here, we're just a few years down the road, 586 or so. Well, there's one before that. (laughs) There's a sense of this all. What we're talking about tonight, there's a sense of this all in the Christian church today. I already mentioned it, called it cheap grace. The Apostle Paul himself was accused of saying that if a person had faith in Jesus, it didn't matter what kind of life he lived after that. That's what they were accusing Paul of saying. Paul never said that. But that's what they were accusing Paul of saying. In fact, he was accused of teaching people that if they sinned after believing in Jesus, it meant that they got to experience more grace. And there have actually been some teachers that have taught that. It's, it's being even taught today in some circles of the emerging church. And they taught it as, and they teach it as if it's a good thing. You know, the more you sin, the more grace there is for you. So go ahead and sin. Well, what's the reality? What, what did Paul say? Let's look at what Paul said, because Paul never contradicted the Word of God. And in, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we see it very clear what Paul is saying here. There's no way to confuse what Paul was saying with what people want to believe today. And he says, what shall we say then? And, and remember how Paul writes in, and, and asks questions for us to think and understand. What this shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's facing that very question or that very uh, uh, statement that was, uh, or accusation, I should say, against him. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer, certainly not. King James Version says, God forbid. It is the strongest denunciation of anything said to him in that particular vein. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, certainly not. No way, Jose. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now notice what he asks. How shall we who died to sin? If we've died to sin and are alive in Christ, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in sin? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. I think Paul answered his accusers powerfully and clearly. Now, it's true that nothing we do can earn God's favor. It's true. It's true that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's true. But, folks, listen. It is also true that we should be changed 
by God's grace as well. We should be changed by God's grace as well. If we've been saved, then the Lord is at work changing us so that we won't want to do those things that are displeasing to Him. He's changing us. That doesn't mean that from time to time we don't make a mistake. It doesn't mean that from time to time we don't get into, you know, this little bit of, you know, whatever frustration or anger that comes sometimes and we, we lose sight of things for a moment and then we realize, ooh, you know, the conviction of the Holy Spirit's always there and we just kind of feel like, ooh, that was a bad thing to do. We seek forgiveness, we ask for forgiveness, we repent of our sin, whatever. But the fact of the matter is the Lord is at work changing us so that we, so that we won't want to do those things that are displeasing to Him. Rather than just say, well, you know, I said a prayer, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, and the things I'm doing right now, I, you, know, I, you know, I know God can forgive me. Or, actually, or, or some of them go to the extent of saying, well, you know, I don't even think it's sin, you know. But God's at work. That's, that's one of the key things to understand here is that God is working on a daily basis. Doing what? Every day He's conforming us into the image of Christ. If we let Him. Because in Philippians 2.13 it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. I don't want my good pleasure accomplished in me. I want His good pleasure accomplished in me. I don't want your good pleasure accomplished in you. I want God's good pleasure accomplished in you. That's why we preach and teach the Word of God here. So you can hear everything that God is saying to you so that you can look at it and see Christ in it. Well, getting back to our text, even Jesus referred to verse 11. That's what I was saying. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Verse 11. He calls it a, a den... This house, which is called by my name, has become a den of thieves in your eyes. Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13, And Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You have made it just like it was in the days of Jeremiah. A den of thieves. Now what's a den of thieves? A den of thieves is the place where crooks go to hide after they've committed their crimes. Today you call them stash houses. Or any other number of things of that nature. In that day it was also temples. And in this day it's churches. who won't raise the standard of the Word of God to say, you're in trouble with God. He said to them, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So a den of thieves is that place where crooks go to hide after they've committed crimes. Well, therefore, Jeremiah, therefore, therefore, listen, because of that, Jeremiah was saying that the Jews were using the temple ceremonies to cover up their sins. They were using the temple ceremonies to cover up their sins. 
They would come into church to ask God to, 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 you know, to examine them so that they might lay things down before they would leave and, and say, God, I want to leave different than I came here today. I came with a weight of sin. I came with a weight of burdens in my life. I, I, need to, I, I want to leave here clean. I want to leave here knowing I've, I've met with you. you. You're here. I know that every week I come, I know that you're here. I can call upon your name. But I know that you go with me. So I know that you're with me every day. But sometimes I lose sight of that. I lose thoughts. You know, I lose uh, myself in my own thoughts and then I do things. But when I come here, I want to know, Lord, that you'll speak to my heart through your word. Instead of being made holy in the temple, listen. Instead of being made holy in the temple, they were making the temple unholy. You see the difference? The same message was preached a century earlier by Isaiah. The very same message. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and you hear the same message. Essentially. The same message. Because any theology, listen carefully, any theology that minimizes God's holiness, any theology that minimizes God's holiness and tolerates people's deliberate sinfulness is a false theology. Those are the words of Warren Worsby. He says, any theology that minimizes God's holiness and tolerates people's deliberate sinfulness is a false theology. So what's the problem today in some churches? The problem today is they have a low view of God and a high view of man. The high view of man, you know, they, they want you to be happy. They want you to be successful. They want you to be prosperous. Where's God in all of that? You read the book of Proverbs and you begin to realize better to have little with joy than to have much with sorrow. You see, when we put God first in everything, whether we have or don't have. What did Paul say? I've learned that in whatever state I am, I am blessed. I've learned to be abased and I've learned to abound. I've learned to have nothing and I've learned to have a lot. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things, which means... I can go through times of trial because I know God's with me. You see, people turn that verse around. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the emphasis isn't on Christ. It is, I can can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see where the emphasis is? They don't ever think, you know, because they're taught that if you go into troubles and trials, you're at fault, you're at sin. Something's wrong with you and your faith. But folks... Paul said, I've learned how to be abased and to abound. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I wish they'd get it right. 
You see in Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 7. It's the same thing in the New Testament. You see, you see it, it doesn't change. Listen to what he says. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, but for an occasion and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. This you know that, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. What about Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21? Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They glory in their shame. They glory in the things that, that are shameful to us as believers, but yet they say they're believers, and yet they glory in the shameful things of their life. But in verse 20 he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. There it is being transformed into the image of Christ daily by God's work in us. So the next section of our text, verses 12 to 15, would be the object lesson for Judah as the Lord was pointing them back to Shiloh. And notice what it says. But go now to my place which is in Shiloh where I set my name at the first. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust. I will do to the house and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as, a, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. And when they first entered the land, when the Israelites first entered the land, they, they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh. And later, as the nation was divided, the northern kingdom of Israel ran into idolatry and God judged them for it. And so Shiloh was no longer a place of worship but had become a barren wasteland that remains in that condition to this day. Those of you who went to Israel in 2000, uh, we went to Shiloh uh, at that time. 
And I got to tell you, when they when they found the, they excavated, they found the location of Shiloh, and they started doing their archaeological uh, uh, excavations and stuff. They found the, the the place where the temple, the, the tabernacle, had been erected. But you look around, all it was was barren wasteland. Because the word of God never lies. Even to this day, it's a barren wasteland. Because God means what he says. And he says what he means. But you see, the people refused to look and to listen to what God was saying. So you listen and you read what it says in Psalm 78. Especially verses 58 through 61. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. And they moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hands. Or into the enemy's hand. God says, you know, I know you're my people. I've called you by my name. I have loved you. But you have to be obedient to me. And when you're not obedient to me, I'm going to have to act upon that disobedience. And even though this place was called by my name... I will have to come against you. Even in Jerusalem. See, they thought that Jerusalem was, you know, y'all ever played tag? You know, y'all had a, y'all had home base or, or, you know, the safe place where you go. Whatever it is, home home base. They thought, well, we just run to Jerusalem, we'll be safe. That was going to be the worst place. Because they were coming into the temple in Jerusalem and their hearts were still idolatrous. God was going to deal with it. When the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant because the evil sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they thought that carrying the Ark into battle would defeat their enemies. Well, they died. They were killed. This is what the Lord did. When Eli hears of the news of of his sons, he dies. We get this part of the story in 1 Samuel 4, verses 19-22. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, 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 which means the glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod, Ichabod. The glory has departed. And so the people of Judah, 
and Jerusalem needed to repent as Jeremiah is crying out to them. They needed to repent not only to avoid the awful consequences of their sins and their character and their worship, but also to escape the judgment that was certain to come. Now we get to the second indictment, and this is where we'll close tonight, but the second indictment given by Jeremiah at the gate of the temple was this. Your prayers do them no good. Now remember the first indictment itself was your worship does you no good, so it was spoken directly to them. But the second indictment is your prayers do them no good. In essence, speaking to Jeremiah. And notice in verses 16 to 20, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. I mean, these are very sad words coming from the mouth of God to our hearts. Don't pray for them. And if you do, I'm not going to hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women need dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. I mean, it's a, it's a terrifying thought to realize that a nation can get so wicked and evil that God finally gives up on them, no longer willing to hear their prayers or the prayers that are made for them. And to think that nothing will now stop the coming judgment. The judgment is coming. But now God says to Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore. And even if you do, I won't listen. I'm going to let judgment come on my people. Actually, throughout the book of Jeremiah, God instructed the prophet at least three times not to pray for the people. Here in verse 16, in chapter 11, verse 4, and in chapter 14, verse 11. We'll see those later. You know, it's interesting that the Lord allowed Abraham to pray for wicked Sodom. And he listened when Moses interceded for sinful Israel. But he wouldn't permit Jeremiah to pray for the kingdom of Judah. Was it that the people were too far gone now in their sins and all that remained for them was judgment? I wouldn't want to mess around with with God this way. You know, God's a loving God, a merciful God, gracious God. God is a good God. Oh, listen, we could go on and on and talk about the mercies of God, how wonderful they are, and they are wonderful. And they are great. But above all things, God is a holy God. God is a true God. God is a righteous God. And we need to honor that. And we need to honor His Word. And we need to honor His commandments. 
It's interesting that John, in, in, in 1 John 5, verse 16, writes these words. He says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. But then he says, There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Hmm. When someone is too far gone, there might come a time that God says, Stop praying. I'm not listening. Every opportunity has been given, but they've rejected every opportunity. Only God knows that, by the way. That's why we keep witnessing the, you know, the gospel. That's why we have to keep telling people about Jesus. There comes a time, though, when we, we oftentimes realize God is saying, stop. Well, the decaying of any nation will always begin at home. I believe that we are nearing a time when the United States of America a nation that was founded on God's truth, founded on the principles of, of the Bible, concerning the values, the, 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 the morality, the, the, even just the spiritual religious foundation that, uh, that, was, uh, that had been the establishment of our, of our nation in time past, is nearing that time. Because in the home today, for the most part, not in every home, but in many homes today, God is not considered. God is not honored. The children grow up, you know, they've, they've made them wards of the state in a sense when they put them in public school. And so you teach them, but don't harm them, don't touch them or we'll sue you. So discipline is thrown out the window. And just think about it. We began to throw God out of the, the public schools back in the 60s. Prayers thrown out of the schools. Just one thing after another. That kids today, even those who say they're Christians, don't see anything wrong with abortion. Don't see anything wrong with same-sex marriage. And I'm talking about people in the church. Where did that come from? Or maybe I should say, why didn't? the truth get emphasized. The home, you see. That's where the Bible has to be taught. The home. God saw the whole families. Listen, God saw whole families in Jerusalem working together to worship idols. I mean, rather than teach their children to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they worship the Queen of Heaven, which was the title for Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess of love and fertility, whose worship involved repulsive, detestable sexual obscenities. But they were all doing it in the house. Can you imagine if people were doing that for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Could you imagine if today people are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in their homes, in their own uh, uh, places where they, they live, and that's the most important thing in their life? If that was what was happening today, how strong would this nation be? And there's more to be said about the Queen of Heaven in chapter 44, so we'll get to saying a lot more about that later. But, but the cakes, they're making cakes. I mean, you know, they sound good, but, you know, I wouldn't want to touch them. They may have been in the shape of Ishtar or Astarte, but 
probably they were just round and flat because they resembled the moon. Ishtar was also, was also linked to Venus. Now, in, in the Catholic Church, Mary has been called the Queen of Heaven. Interesting. And she is spoken of as the co-redemptrix. Co-redeemer, by the way. The Bible teaches us that only Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. That's what the Bible teaches, folks. Pure and simple. It never once says that Mary is the co-redemptrix or the co-redeemer. Never once. It's not in the Bible. So they believe that she's the person that you need to pray to in order to get to God. What happened to what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But we know something that Mary, like all of us, she was a sinner. Do you know how we know that she was a sinner? She was a sinner in need of a Savior too. And we know that from her great prayer called the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 49 when Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That implies a need for a Savior. And then she said, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. A lowly state would imply that she was not deity. And then, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Blessed, why? Because she was chosen to be the mother of Jesus, to bear him. But then, notice, notice verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Queen of Heaven is just an interesting designation given to her. She would say, no, I'm not Queen of Heaven. My soul magnifies the Lord. And she's speaking of her son who is now Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, just to close, the judgment for all that the Jews have done in spiting God will be fierce, and it will be furious. Notice verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, and on the trees of the field, and on the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Now, the people would bear both spite and shame as consequences of their sin. What is more, sin affects all realms of nature. Sin always does. You see, we can't ever say, well, my sin is a personal sin. It's not going to affect anybody else. No, you can't think that way. Sin will always affect everything. Everything and anything around you and about you. In this particular case, if a whole nation is sinning, especially great sins against God, the God who created them, the God who made them, their, uh, his, made them his people, 
It is definitely going to affect all realms of nature. Devastation would fall on man. It would fall on beasts. It would fall on trees and the produce of the soil, the fruit of the ground. This brings to mind the very words of the Apostle Paul to the Romans about this world and the creation. Romans 8 verses 20 to 22, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. All of creation. We can't hear it, but God can. So don't, you know, don't go you know, tomorrow morning when you're leaving the house and go up to your favorite tree on your property and put your ear next to it wanting to hear the groaning. God can hear it, but you can't. All creation is groaning. Just think about the laws, the scientific laws of this universe. In particular, the second law of thermodynamics. And they say that Christians aren't scientific. We are more scientific than the world because we believe God gave us all of the the scientific laws. But this one in particular that says everything, everything is wearing itself down. Is that not what's happening today? Because the clock is turning and coming closer and closer to what? To the consummation of the ages, to the end of the ages. Why? Because Jesus is coming back, just as He said, to take care of all of the accounts of all of the nations of all of this world. He's going to take His church and take us home. He's going to come and He's going to set up His kingdom. He's going to bless Israel. Israel will be restored. And then He's going to take His throne in Jerusalem. The city He said is my city. And my people will be with me. And will come with Him. This is the good part of the story. (laughs) This is the good part of what's being presented but the important thing is are you his child do you belong to Jesus Christ because you see if not then you have to expect what Israel and Judah had to expect in that day judgments coming So either be with me, because if you're with me, I'll protect you. I'll care for you. I'll watch over you. I love you already. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I love you already. But why do you hate me and spite me? It's a good question to ask. I hope and pray you love Jesus tonight. I hope and pray that you know him, that you really know him, and not just know about him. Let's pray.